I keep running out of time to preach, huh? Um, I wouldn't trade the worship for, for more time, though. I really wouldn't. Uh, my personal walk has always been such that I don't have to be in a church to be fed from the Word. Uh, I do that daily. I, I mean, I, I do that throughout the day. But I can't worship by myself in the way that I worship with God. Now, I hope your biblical study is as strong as mine, if not stronger. I hope so. But if you're not reading on a regular basis and feeding yourself the Word as much as you're feeding yourself food, then I want to tell you, you're woefully short of the biblical standard. You must make these meetings. And you must do what, uh, what is being preached. Or else you're just fooling yourself. You know? Uh, let's get into the Word. We're in 2 Kings. We're going to be in 16. I uh, was given a book by the P. Rose, and I, I have to say, I've been thoroughly impressed with it. Like all books, you have to chew, out, uh, chew up the meat and spit out the bones. But uh, I want to give you the first five chapter headings here. If you take notes, uh, this would be something to write down. We're going to come back to this many times for several months. Uh, first chapter heading, unfathered. This is a description of the church. He says the church is unfathered. Second one, uncorrected. The church is uncorrected. Third, the church is unfruitful. Fourth, the church is unhealed. Fifth, the church is untaught. Unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed, and untaught. I wish I could say that when I looked at that, uh, I could say that's everybody else's church. There are aspects of that that apply to our church, that apply to my life. Uh, And when I began to look at it and wonder why, there are a lot of things that come to mind. We're going to finish with those five principles today, but first I want to show you a scripture that a man gave me prophetically here recently and he didn't realize what he was saying. Uh, It comes from 2 Kings 16, and it is about King Ahaz. What we're going to see with King Ahaz is some things, some habits that the American church has that causes unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed, and untaught. Second uh, Kings 16.1 In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Rehemlah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king. <laughs> to be the president of our country, you have to be at least forty. He's 20, but he's certainly not the youngest king to reign. I mean, Josiah was 8. Uh, Azahariah, one of the righteous kings, a king, two kings before him, uh, was 16 when he began to reign. I uh, wonder whether youth is his problem. It could be a setback, but I wonder if it's his problem. And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Well, if he started at 20 and he reigned 16 years, how old is he when his life's work is done? 36. That's not exactly a long reign, huh? You remember I mentioned Azariah a minute ago? Well, he started at 16. He reigned 52 years. Why would one king only reign 16 and another 52 years over God's nation? Hmm. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There we go. That's why. Azariah, the first thing it says about him is he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This king did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaz didn't get it right. Well, let's look at some of the things he did. He did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Whew. Kings of Israel. 
You need to know there's a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's called Israel, while the southern kingdom's called Judah, and occasionally both kingdoms are also called Israel. Uh, it's kind of like the uh, civil war in our country. We had a confederacy, we had a union. Uh, technically, the union was the United States, and the separatists were not any longer. Uh, they're the Confederate States of America, but you could refer to it all as the United States, because before the war it was the United States, after the war it's the United States. Same thing in the Bible. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel had their own set of worship that was not what God described. And the first flaw that Ahaz has is he imitates them. In other words, he's willing to compromise the standards of God. Watch what happens next. And even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Immediately in the book of Deuteronomy, he warned them, Do not do the detestable things these people do. In the 12th chapter and 31st verse, he specifically says, These nasty people sacrificed their sons in the fire. Don't you dare do that. Do you know that every king of Israel was supposed to have written down the law in his own handwriting and carried it with him? So it's not as if Ahaz didn't know this, that he sacrificed his son. We're going to find out why. Nobody in here has killed their kids. At least I hope not. We'll have a counseling meeting afterwards followed by a trip to the local jail. But let me ask you something. How many sons and daughters potential? do you think has been sacrificed to parents' ambition for worldly things? Do not think, fathers, mothers, that you can live a compromised life without sacrificing your children. It will not be done. Never. A righteous man's heritage is that his children's children serve the Lord. But an unrighteous man can be cut off from the Lord for a thousand. Actually, the word says third and fourth. It's a thousand that is righteous. My point being is your behavior trickles down to your children. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. Anybody in here uh, ever smoke? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first cigarette, the first marijuana cigarette I ever smoked was in my own home. Anybody in here ever been drunk? Don't raise your hands. The first time I was ever drunk was in my own home. I was nine. The first time I ever watched pornography it was in my own home and I had not yet reached the age of ten. Do you think that the household that a child is raised in will affect the child? This man sacrificed his son. What do you know about a firstborn son? He's dedicated to the Lord. What God meant to be His and His alone, this man, through his immoral behavior, killed him in a fire. But many Americans do the very same thing without actually burning their children. When we go to church on Sunday and Wednesday, and we say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and then we live like hell from Monday through Saturday, it is like sacrificing our children in the fire. They grow up and say things like, I don't like religion, it was forced on me. What does that mean? How do you force a relationship of love on someone? They grow up and say things like, everybody in the church is a hypocrite. It destroys them. And unless Jesus breathes life into them, there's no hope. There's no hope. 
The single biggest reason for atheism is hypocrisy in the church. That's been known forever and ever and ever. But there would be no hypocrisy in the church if there was not already hypocrisy in the homes. My goal in sharing some of this with you is to get you to examine your life. To get you to think about what your children and what the people around you see every day. Every parent that I have come into contact with is hesitant to say anything other than, my children were raised in a Christian home. I want you to know I have met very few that were. In a Christian home, wouldn't you expect the parents and the children to pray together daily? Yes. In a Christian home, wouldn't you expect Daddy to teach Mom and the children the Word of God? In a Christian home, wouldn't you expect that? Isn't that what the Word describes? In a Christian home, wouldn't you expect Daddy to lay hands on the children and anoint them with oil more often than they run to the doctor? Why did it get so quiet? In a Christian home, would you not expect a parent to be the one who disciples their children? But we passed the idea that a Christian home is one where the children were brought to church. Well, then I'm also a McDonald's home. And a Chuck E. Cheese home. And a Taco Bell home. One of the most tense moments... In a situation that I once observed about that. A mother claimed, I raised you in a Christian home. The child turned and said, really? What about those four years there was the divorce and the boyfriends and the shame? Shame all over them. But insistent they raised their kid in a Christian home. Saints, we cannot sacrifice our sons and daughters. We can't. And what you need to understand is that although there's no consequence for something like surfing internet pornography immediately, first time God reveals it and your children see it, you have just lost the only thing that's of value in your life, the respect of your loved ones. The first time your children realize that you will cheat on your taxes, the first time your children realize that you will do whatever it takes to get ahead in business, the first time your children realize that your commitment to them be at ball games, to do things that you've told them to do, is optional, depending on whether or not it's pleasing to you? What do you think that does? Parents are pastors of children. This man failed in his first regard. Because before he's a king in Israel, before he's anything else, he was somebody's daddy. And he sacrificed him in the fire. And that's disgusting and it's deplorable. But I'd rather die once in the fire, all at once, and have life sucked out of me my entire life. Boy, isn't that a sobering word? Make you rethink the words Christian home. Look at this. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and ever, under every spreading tree. Then Rezin, king of Amram, Pekah, son of Remhalah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. Somebody comes to fight against him in a civil war, and they couldn't overpower him. Wow, that's exciting, isn't it? You feel like you gained a victory when the very fact that you were in conflict is defeat? <laughs> he wins an argument, but why is he even in this? What is Israel doing fighting with Judah? Is that not defeated by itself that there is a civil war here? He overpowered them. I want you to understand when we engage in conflicts, whether we win or don't win, 
there is always loss. Read these next lines. At that time, Rezin, king of Amram, recovered Elath for Amram by driving out the men of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. If you're not losing ground with your children, and I assure you, you are if you are living a compromised life. The other thing is, even when we engage in battles that we appear to win, in small towns that nobody can point to on a map, small areas, crevices of your life, you've just ceded it to the enemy. Something that God said was yours, like integrity, is suddenly gone. Whether anybody sees it or not is not the point. It's gone. You know it, God knows it, and it destroys confidence, and it makes you less than you were called to be. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Amram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Who is supposed to save the king of Judah? Yahweh God. This man's son. Ahaz has a son later. His name's Hezekiah. He calls on Yahweh God, and Yahweh God shows up in the form of a destroying angel and kills 180,000 of Sennacherib's men to deliver him. But this guy doesn't call on Yahweh God. Who's he called on? The king of Assyria. With a difficult man. He says, I will be your vassal. I will serve you. If you will save me. Boy, that was so disgusting to me that I had a hard time reading it until I began thinking about the godly men that I know that have compromised their principles to get ahead. Told just a little lie. Done somebody just a little wrong in a business deal. That have placed the value of a promotion over the value of God's approval, that have trusted in the dollar to save them rather than the God of the universe. Is that hidden a little closer to home? And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord in the treasury of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Where did he go purchase the king of Assyria's gift? Did he go to Walmart? Where did he get the king of Assyria's gift? Who did he take it from? That's deplorable, isn't it? All the heads are bobbing, right? It's deplorable. Yeah. What do you think it is when God says one-tenth of all of your income belongs to him and you do something else with it? What do you think it is? See, as I began to read this, I was disgusted at Ahaz. I thought, was there ever a worse king? You know, of Judah. I mean, sometimes the kings of Israel were pretty wicked. You know, Jeroboam, son of Nebat's as bad as it gets. But I thought, not in Judah, Lord. And I began looking at this. Everything that this man does, everything that he does, is not only found in the American church, it's rampant. Look, it comes down to it. You, you're looking at your finances. And you could have a boss, uh, you could have dinner with your boss. You could have a, a party that was uh, scheduled from work, or you could tithe. <laughs> if you chose to have that party, how is that any different than this? Do you think that's not happening in the American church? Somebody said, well, I've got to pay my mortgage. 
you will always struggle to pay your mortgage until you leave what is God's in God's hands. Always. I already told you before the service, it's my belief that 99% of our church is now obedient in this area. That's what enables me to be able to teach this so strongly. Uh, I'm, I'm not beating on your lives. I'm trying to show you that these warnings, these examples that were written down from us, they haven't changed. They're still there. We just have learned to dress it up to where it's, it's not so bad. I mean, so, so he didn't tithe. I mean, he threw something in the box. Look how this is presented here. He's trying to buy worldly comfort, protection, by stealing from God. Do you think that is not going on every day in our finances? Man, this was so searing to me. I had trouble reading it. I mean, there's literally... I literally smeared the ink on my pages where I took notes here. This is uh, difficult. Because I want to think of Ahaz as a horrible human being until I look at my life. Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kir and put Rezim to death. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet tiglath Pileser. We're going to call him T.P. Not toilet paper. T.P. King of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar. Now he is in a foreign king's dominion. He's the king of the chief city of the world, Jerusalem. And he admires an altar to a foreign god. And he calls for his priest. And his priest comes and sketches it. Do you, uh, do you see something wrong with that? What do you think it is like when churches get off of their knees in the prayer meeting to get vision and they start to adapt, adapt worldly business concepts? Like, uh, well, I think you probably already know what some of them are, huh? What happens when the church is mixing worldly principles in the worship of God? For success. Maybe we should tell all of our believers, you don't need to bring your Bibles. I mean, we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Maybe we should avoid talking about the bloody sacrificial cross. Because, I mean, you don't want to make people uncomfortable. Maybe we should really make sure everybody feels good about themselves every service. Because, I mean, after all, that's what's needed, right? What happens when we move worldly principles into the church? Look, look, I mean, they rush for success here. Verse 11. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. He was motivated, wasn't he? Before the guy even gets back from Damascus, which is just north of Israel, he's got this altar built. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. Who were the offerings to? <laughs> You're going to read here. These offerings are to the Lord. They're just on the wrong altar. What is it when we claim to be doing something for God, but secretly, it's for our glory? 
I built this church for you, Lord. I just stretched my name all the way across the top of it. And my picture's on every corner. I did this for you, Lord. I don't want any glory from it. As long as I'm getting glory. What do you think that is? He offered up his burnt offerings and grain offerings and poured out his drink offerings and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. Well, good for him. God already had an altar. He already had a prescribed way. This man has chosen his own way. Something conceived of the world, not born of the Spirit. You don't think we could be talking about uh, any American church today, huh? Think we could be talking about some aspects of our lives? I know the word says this, but I mean, let's get real. In the business world, that doesn't work. You know how many times I've heard that as a pastor heard that? Well, then you might as well just go serve Baal now. Why pretend to serve God while actually living like Baal? This was my uh, least favorite part of this whole chapter. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. Now, if you could look at this from above, what this would be is uh, he moved the altar that was God's a little closer to the Holy of Holies. And where that original altar stood, he put the satanic altar. That seems odd, doesn't it? Listen to his motivation. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large, new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. On the what kind of altar? The new and large altar. He put the new large altar out there for everybody to see because, I mean, if it's new and large, it must be God, right? Never mind that the early church met in homes. If it is new and large, it must be God. Isn't that amazing? When I was reading this, I almost fell out of my chair. He didn't ever get rid of God's altar, though. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. Why didn't he use his new large altar for seeking guidance? And did he really think that he could move a satanic altar because it was new and large and more attractive? that would attract all the people into God's temple and then still get guidance from God's altar? It's an amazing thing. You think Samson compromised his life before his hair was cut? (laughs) Where was he when his hair was cut? We'll probably cover some of that Sunday. I think I'm going to leave that then. I just want to submit to you the idea that long before you move a new large altar in your life, there are signs of weakness. Probably already compromised in your home. Your children probably already see it. You probably are already relying on worldly principles to save you and robbing God of your talents and your money. You probably did all of those things before an altar to a foreign God ever actually appeared. But then, so as not to appear as unchristian, 
we keep the altar of God around. Wouldn't you have more respect for him if he threw out everything that was God's and said, hey, we built the temple to Satan, would you like to come? At least the message would be clear. But how confusing is this? How confusing is it when people look and they can't tell whether you really worship God or some other God? How confusing is it when you are lukewarm? It's confusing enough to make God himself want to puke. And so far, what I've read about him over these last 17 years, he's an incredibly patient guy. Must take a lot to make him want to vomit. We're going to move on from this. i got one more verse for you, and we're going to have to move towards the end of the message here soon. King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. Have you noticed how compromising one principle has led to every other item in the temple? He didn't get rid of any of them. He just modifies them all. We don't really need these bronze bulls, even though God said to put them there. A stone base will work so much better. Well, why don't we just make you God, Ahaz? When somebody looks at me and says, I know that you said that, and I know that the Word says that, but I cannot do that. Well, why don't we just make you God then, Mr. Man? I hope to God that doesn't slip out if we're talking at some point. But I tell you, I've had several occasions in the last few months to say that to people. What is true doesn't always need to be said in that moment, though. I figure the Holy Ghost can work on people. Uh, and I am so proud of our church. If I preach to a church I'm proud of like this, can you imagine what it's like to have me as a guest speaker? <laughs> there was a little town in Louisiana full of uh, long denim skirts and long, long hair. And uh, it's called the Ritter. And they messed up and had me uh, speak to their youth group. Who they assume were all saved. I got phone calls, and Preston and Sarah Beth got phone calls from parents that were elated in the changes in their children that were amazing because they got born again. And I got phone calls from all of the ones that didn't get born again. You made them scared, and they're questioning their salvation. So, well, they could have got baptized in the fountain just like everybody else did. It's time for us to tell the truth. I view Wednesdays as a family meeting. And I want you to know, Judas here, in my family, we talk like this. We apply these same standards to me as Judah. We all must learn to love the Lord. A parent in this group asked me, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. By the way, I think their kids are wonderful. Wonderful. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. My children don't seem to want to read and don't seem to love the Lord like, I mean, they're not just excited about it like I am. He goes, I don't want to force them. I said, force them. Force them 100% of the time. It's your job. You are a daddy. Force them. Because, but I don't want them to rebel against it later. Your job is to impress upon your family the word. That's your job. What they do with that is between them and Jesus. In an increasing level of accountability, hear me, from 13 forward. Do not wait till 18. Do not wait till 28 or 38 to emancipate your children. It should be a process that grows from 13 all the way to adulthood, which in my view starts at 18. If you're old enough to fight and die for the country, you ought to be old enough to live with your own decisions. Unfathered church. Unfathered. What a problem. It's the first chapter in that book. He took away the Sabbath canopy 
that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. (laughs) I wanted to throw up at this point. That's like saying out of respect for the king of Assyria so as not to cause a problem for the king of Assyria, let's offend God. But what exactly is our culture trying to force upon us now? How many of you are scared to speak about Jesus in your workplace because you might be fired? The early church wasn't scared to get their heads cut off for speaking about Jesus. Why are we scared to be fired? And trust me, I want all of you to work. I want all of you to work, but I'm going to trust that our God is big enough to let us do what is right. This guy had more deference for the king of Syria than the God of Israel. What is your life, Shelton? Do you have more respect for God than any worldly principle? If you do, then you are yearning for Him, casting aside anything that would entangle your walk. No friendship. No relationship with parents. No job. No relief from consequence is worth being separated from the God of Israel. And this guy traded his family his reign, his love for God, for light and momentary comforts. How sad. But it plays out over and over and over in America today, all around us. And if you are not careful, it will play out in your life. Suddenly the thing that God has told you to do is no longer exhilarating. The wife that God told you to marry is no longer exciting. The friends that God told you to have are no longer pleasing to you. We have a way of growing cold. Saints, fan it into flame. Look for areas in your life where you've taken from what is God's and given to the world. Look for areas where you might be sacrificing your children's futures. Look for areas where you are relying upon your right arm rather than God, because that's no different than calling on the king of Assyria. Look for areas where you are modifying what you know God's word says for creature comforts. Look for areas in which you have worshipped that which was new and large rather than that which was blood-covered and proven. That is an amazing word for the church, isn't it? And the man that gave it to me just said, hey, i got a word for you about two altars. Right? This word is for us. On this topic of unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed, and untaught. How many is that? Five. Five. Unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed, untaught. I have time to teach the rest of this message, so I want to give you the cliff notes. Because I would love for you to develop a habit of study yourself. What do you think is the five-fold cure for this problem? You might find it in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, for the edification and strengthening of the church, God appointed some to be apostles. An apostle is a fatherly figure. He is somebody who puts you on the right footing. Church, I stood up and asked you all a month ago, who mentored you? Who is your spiritual mentor? An apostle figure in your life is very important. You need somebody not only for correction in those things, but the truth is you need somebody to pat you on the back every now and then and say, I'm proud of you. 
And when we don't get it, we develop insecurities that control our behavior. We don't realize it, but the reason we act certain ways is because there was a deficiency in our life. God has the cure for it. It's the apostolic ministry. If you're scared of the word apostle, and trust me, I know what it means in the fullness of the word. For your sake, we're talking about father figures. Paul told the Corinthian church they could have 10,000 tutors, but he became their father. Oh, brother, I'm old enough that my father's not around anymore. But did you have one? Did somebody put you on good footing? And if you didn't recognize that deficiency and seek out those men. One of the most respected pastors in my life is mentored by a man in his 90s. Uncorrected corresponds to the prophet. The reason our churches are in the shape they're in today where you cannot correct a person is because there are not bold men and women who will stand up to a pastor, who will stand up to any figure, no matter what the cost, and say, you are the man. Not in a good sense. In the sense you are the man that's in sin. The prophetic ministry cures the uncorrectable church. So, well, I haven't met any prophets. If the word prophet's a problem for you, look for somebody who holds you personally accountable. If you're having a problem with the internet, assign your password to someone else. Set it up so that it sends an email to your closest friends if you break it. If you're having a problem with the TV, all of them are programmable now. Let your wife program it. <laughs> yeah, that makes everybody uncomfortable, doesn't it? Why? How long do we want to continue with two altars? Saying somewhere we have to develop lives that are beyond reproach so that we can move into the next area. The church is unfruitful. Is it any wonder? If you don't have a father to follow the example of, if you are not corrected, it's funny, in this book, the man says, now in your church there are members and there are attenders. And he said, the attenders tend to sit towards the back. Now in our church there is no back. Okay. But he said, they tend to sit towards the back. These are the ones that fought on the way to church. While they're sitting in church, they're contemplating whether or not they really need to attend every Sunday. And their children are climbing the walls of the sanctuary and under the pews and everywhere else and are completely uncorrectable. Man. The cure for an unfathered church is father figures, apostles. The cure for an uncorrected church is accountability. Somebody who will look at you and point out your sin and does not particularly care whether you like it or not. The cure for the unfruitful church, which is it any wonder those two are followed by unfruitful, is we have viewed evangelism and some of my closest friends have viewed it this way. I'm telling you, it's bringing me into contention with them on a regular basis. Pray with me, brother. Okay, saved. Okay, come here, come here, bow your head. Okay, saved. I want to tell you right now, I don't consider three words saving you. I really don't. You can say Jesus is Lord and be a demoniac. Because it's a lie when it comes out of your mouth. You cannot say Jesus is Lord and it be a true statement and be unsaved. If He is Lord, He is your Savior. The cure for an unfruitful church is a revival of a true evangelist. 
A true evangelist is not just there making a convert. That is ridiculous. And I'm sorry if that hurts people's feelings. I know that that's what's traditionally taught. That is not what you see in Scripture. Evangelism that is evangelism makes disciples. It does not make converts. It is not unconcerned with the waiter you just prayed for 30 seconds after you prayed for him. A church that is unfruitful needs to be taught to multiply. This means when I invested years of my life into Mandy, I expected Mandy to invest years of her life into other people. That is a church that multiplies. Saints, it's not okay to warm up you. If you have been set free from bondages in your life, if you have fallen in love with the glorious King of Israel, how can you not go do that for other people? When is the last time you brought somebody to church? When is the last time you stood outside of the church walls and passionately, spiritually led, talked to somebody about Jesus? Come on, saints. If you don't look for the opportunities, if you're not stirred in your spirit crying out to God to help you fight through the satanic mess all around us and find those people, who's going to? You can wait for the Chinese Christians to do it if you want. And I'll outwork you. I don't want to stand on that day and be ashamed. I want his investment in me to be fruitful. Unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed. The reason people are unhealed is because they do not allow themselves to be pastored. A pastor's job is to examine your life. That means he has to be close to you. You have to let him be close to you. If you've ever heard me look at you and said, Brother, I feel the distance between us, it's because it is my job for there to be no distance between us. It's my job to be in your business. Not making decisions for you but examining your life, measuring you against Christ, so that we can find those areas of hurt and bondage and stronghold that have crept in and help you get healed. That's the point. The point is not to embarrass you. The point's not to beat on you. The point is to be intimate enough with you to get you healed. So I, I, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else to do that. Oh, who made you God? But I hear it all of the time. We had a powerful move in our ladies' meetings. There's a book called The Excellent Wife. Two women looked me right in the eye and said, I don't need that when I need encouragement or I need correction or study. I just get it from the Word myself. They're the two most uncorrectable women I know. It does not work that way. And it's what's produced a generation that follows after Ahaz. It's what's produced generations of unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, and unhealed people. Now tell me that that didn't ring in your spirit. Tell me that you don't think that that is accurate, if not about your own life, about everybody else's. Of course you do. You cannot watch TV and come away with another conclusion than this. I really have to quit here. Because we have children in the back. But I want to give you the last one in brief form. Untaught. Why do you think people are untaught? Well, one is to get a newer, larger altar. 
We have watered down the principles of the Word. We've done whatever it takes to draw a crowd rather than to make disciples. Remember that the root of the word disciple is discipline. Remember that. And it's to make someone who imitates you. So that pastors ought to be able to stand and say, follow my example as I follow Christ. That was the goal. Generation after generation after generation. Why do you think people are untaught? Well, one is because it's not taught rightly from the pulpit. I'm doing everything I know how to do to correct that. Most people's first comments are, wow, you cover so much scripture in every sermon. And this one I actually tried to narrow it down to not lose people's attention. Another is, they're not teachable. They only want to know what will make them rich. What will bless them. They only want to know what will personally enrich my life. Christianity is not about personally enriching your life. It's about enriching the lives of others. The ministry of teacher fixes this. In your life, there needs to be people that are teaching you. And not just one behind a pulpit. You ought to be able to learn from your friends. Paul Youngy Cho has a church that is the largest in the world. He has decades of untarnished ministry. He visited Bethany World Prayer Center at a time when there were only 6,000 people in it. Only 6,000. <laughs> he told Larry Stockstill, the pastor, right after the meeting, right after the message, Brother Larry, by the way, Cho was near 70 now. Brother Larry, I am so happy to be here. I have so much to learn from you. Where is that spirit gone? What I tend to hear is, you know, it's hard for me to receive correction from you. You're younger than me, Eric. Sorry. You're obviously much more advanced spiritually. I can feel it. What I tend to hear the most is, yeah, yeah, oh, we done yet? What do I have to do to appease you to get out of this office, to get out of your focus? Let me move out of distance, out of the light. Guys, if you want to be like Jesus, you must embrace the ministry of a teacher. And the ministry of a teacher will take the complex things that are going on in your mind and make them simple. And will make it black and white. Like, you either love Jesus or you don't. Which is it? They sound like First John. He who sins is of the devil. Yeah? I don't want to be in this category. And when I was reading this man's book, Most of it, I could say, praise God, I think we're making some, some headway in these areas. But I have to say, there are a few of them that stung. And I don't want that to be us. At the end of this, there's one prize that is waiting for me. And that's that if your life bears fruit, and not only fruit, but fruit that lasts. That is the only thing. There is no 401k that our church has set up. There is no savings account. There is nothing except fruit in your lives. So if I seem overly interested in it, it's because I've invested my whole life in it and plan to invest as many more years as God will give me in whoever seated up here. I do not want to have a church that looks like Ahaz. I'm very proud of our church in so many areas. I am not even correcting you today. I am warning you from the very depths of my soul. That's what I'm doing. Examine your life. Let's get these things right. Because I believe that what is happening all over the place is a shaking. 
I think that there is a shaking that is occurring because there is only one kind of church that God will be able to use as the darkness grows. And I do not think it's the one with the newest, biggest altar. I think it's the one that has gotten these areas right in their lives. And that is my sole goal. And I want to tell you the truth. If we whittle this down from 70 to 5, then I'm going to find a way to make that work. But I'm thrilled to death that you're here. And I value you. I value you to the extent that I'm spending my life serving you. Trying to teach you to spend your life serving other people. Y'all stand your feet. Please, for my heart's sake, so that you will bring refreshment to my very spirit, when we see each other Sunday, and we better all see each other Sunday, I know where you live. When we see each other Sunday, please have read Isaiah 58. Please be able to name the fivefold ministry and the deficits that occur when they're not there. It's not hard. Please be able to do that. Okay? You cannot have searched your life carefully if four days later you don't even know what the areas were. Too often we hear a message and we just walk out. We are moved for... There's a psychologist that named this generation. I promise I'm closing in prayer here. There is a psychologist that named this generation emotionless. said they are so callous, they are impossible to move. They seem so entitled. This is a secular psychologist. They seem so entitled that it is impossible to produce feelings of guilt, shame, ambition, <coughs> reward in them. There is only the sense that everything is owed to them and they owe no one anything. I have to say the secular psychologist was dead on. And it has even grown since I was a kid. I, I can't believe it. It's, it's, it's epidemic. I sure want to be different. And I want to raise children that are different. And I want us to grow and be strengthened from each other. Are you ready to pray? Yes. Mighty God, Holy One, You have given us all of the answers and we have failed to put them into practice. Lord, Your Word is flawless. It is perfect. Refined by silver. Refined like silver seven times. Our lives are the problem, Lord God. Not Your Word. Not Your ministry. Help us get our lives in order. We really do want to be behind the veil. We really do want to be in your presence. We want to walk with your favor. But all too often we believe the lie that it's possible to indulge our sinful nature and walk with you. Lord, you're making it clearer to us every day that that is not possible. Lord, you're pointing out our deficiencies so that you can strengthen us and correct us. Lord, we pray that you find pliable hearts that delight in you. Lord, we're asking that you would drop in our hearts the good desires that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Look, don't forget to invite somebody someday.